I'd be honest right from the get-go. Is that okay? You're all like, wow, this is going to be an interesting Sunday. I'm a Husker fan. Just wanted to get that out of the way to confess that to you. Got to be honest here in the pulpit. Um, but in all seriousness, that doesn't matter. We love being in Iowa. We've uh, lived here for three years. We originally, previously from Salt Lake City, Utah, did church planting work out there, and God brought us here to Urbandale, Iowa, and it's great. We're grateful to be here in Iowa. Um, if the, I think we have a slide up on the screen. I'll introduce my family to you. I'm married to my wife Nicole, and uh, we've been married for 14 years and in ministry together for 14 years. And uh, my son Jonathan and my little daughter Maddie. So that's my family, and uh, we're grateful to be with you this morning. Um, I had the, pre- the pleasure of meeting Pastor Matt about a year ago, year and a half ago, kind of about not too long after I moved here and had coffee with him, and it seems like he's a great man doing a lot of great things here and grateful to, to be of service to him and to you guys as he takes a break and a sabbatical, which is very much needed, and, and so just humbled to be here, and I hope today that you'll be encouraged um, by God's Word. Um, that's the most important reason that I'm here today. It's not to talk about me or the, the reality of how bad the Huskers are, um, but to talk about how good God is, how good Jesus is, how good His Word is, how trustworthy His Word is, and that song promises, like the second to last song that our team sang, I think really encapsulates the message that we're going to hear today, and I think it's a really great reflection. And so um, I just want to uh, encourage you today from God's Word. So if you have a Bible or a smartphone or a tablet or whatever it is that you've got, go ahead and pull that out, and we're going to be in Luke 21. Uh, you guys know that because last week you were in Luke 20. Um, and so you guys are finishing up a series in Luke. And I was joking with Josh earlier this morning that uh, they gave me one of the hardest chapters in Luke. Because not only is it a whole chapter, and there's so many things that you could say in a chapter, uh, but it's one of the most kind of scholarly contested chapters in all of Luke. It's the Olivet Discourse, and there's so many things that Jesus says in this chapter that are prophetic, um, present back then, but also present today, but also to come. And so there's so much controversy or scholarly debate about so many things in this passage. I said, well, thanks, Josh. That's really cool. You know, you give me that passage, but I'll do my best. Obviously, in the time we have together today, I don't have time to unpack every single thing that's in this. So I want to encourage you. If you've got a good study Bible, if you've got Bible study groups, I'm sure you do, spend some time in it this week. Look at your cross-references, look at your notes, um, and study, because there's a lot there, and there's a lot going on here today that I won't have time for. So our text today in Luke 21, like I said, is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Olivet just means that he was teaching on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, This same story is also found in Matthew 24. You might be familiar with that chapter because it's also a very similar account of the same event. Um, It's it's written by Matthew instead of Luke. Um, So you can read that as well as you're studying. There's a few things that are different, but a lot of it's very similar. So I would encourage you to read those in parallel together if you want to study later. Um, This text is a continuation of Jesus' teaching in Luke 20. As you heard last week, I listened to a little bit of the sermon last week to try to get up to speed on where you guys are at today. But he started teaching in the temple with the, around the chief, the chief uh, Pharisees, the Sadducees, in Luke 20. And this is a continuation of kind of that same context, that same time period. Uh, and his disciples are obviously with him in the midst of this. Um, and this Jesus kind of launches into this massive uh, teaching. And it all is predicated on the disciples looking at the temple and going, wow, this temple is so beautiful. Look at the stones. Look at the jewels. And Jesus takes that as a teachable moment. 
And he reminds them of some things that I think are important for us today, and obviously they were important for the disciples then. So we're going to read the passage together. I'm going to give you the main point of the text, the main point of the sermon. We're going to try to walk through a bit of those pieces of the sermon today and then end with some application that's relevant to us today as we leave here and as we live in a crazy world in 2022. I think there's much that Jesus has for us today in the text. So Luke 21, and we're going to be reading from 5 through the end of the chapter. So this is in the CSB, which is your guys' translation, and so let's read this. Follow along with me. Luke 21, starting in verse 5. As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near, but don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or to contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. But by your endurance, gain your lives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Jerusalem and Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it, because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and there will be an anguish on the earth among all nations, uh, among nations bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectations of the things that are coming in the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with a power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the leaves. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing drunkenness and the worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. 
for it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all of the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and acknowledge that what we are reading today is a lot. And Father, I ask that you, by your Spirit's help, would guide today's teaching, that your voice would be the primary voice being heard today, your truth would be the only truth heard today, and that all who are in this room, including myself, would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and application to apply boldly and courageously this week. Lead us and guide us by your Spirit's help today, in Jesus' name, amen. So, we've read a lot, but the main point of the text to the original audience back then, I'm going to try to summarize, and some of it will be on the screen, but there are specific events that are going to foreshadow the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, the return of man, and the end of the world. Now, while all these things are important, Jesus is instructing his disciples not only to know that these things are coming but to how to be prepared for these things when they come and what they ought to be like and what their lives ought to look like when they happen and when they come. Jesus wants his disciples to be watchful, observant, ready to embrace persecution as an opportunity for witness, to be filled with hope even though they endure hard things, yet they're waiting for him to come again. So when we read a passage like this, it's very, very tempting to fall into a trap. You might already know what the trap is. The trap is to get so distracted by the events that Jesus prophesies that are to come that we lose focus of the main point. And the main point is not how are we going to figure out exactly when that event is going to happen in our world and how do we know it's happening today? And if we connect this to that, we know it's going to happen here and if this happens here, then we're going to do this. That's a huge distraction, actually. Jesus is not concerned about if we can figure out exactly when everything happens. He is more concerned about how we are going to live as his disciples in a world where it will end. The end is certain. Jesus said so. The question is not when is it going to happen, but how are we going to live until it does? Until he comes again or until we breathe our last, our primary concern is how ought we be faithful as a disciple of Jesus, joining him in his mission. And so the main point of the sermon today is basically that is that the second coming of Christ is guaranteed. The the end of the world is certain. We know that. But as believers, we are called to embrace these realities with great faith, with evangelistic zeal, and a prayerful watchfulness. And His words, Jesus' words are trustworthy. They're reliable. They will not pass away. And they are the source of our confident hope in our latter times. Amen? I don't know about you, but we live in crazy times, but we also have to remember history. 1930s, people thought they lived in crazy times, and it was. 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, wars, a lot of them. Many of you might have even served, and we thank you for your service. There's been crazy times since Jesus ascended and went into heaven, haven't there been? And every decade, we see another crazy thing, and it's not unfair for us to kind of go, is this the end of the world? Is this the end? It's coming. Look at what's going on, Lord. And it's easy for us, I think, to be so distracted with the reality of the end is coming and is it coming now that we forget, well, how should I live? 
What's my prayer life like in the midst of the end times, if that even is where we are right now? What is our dependency on Jesus look like? Am I distracted by what's going on in the world, or am I focused on following Jesus despite what's happening in the world? And so that's kind of the main thrust today. Um, Our text, like I said, begins with kind of a provocative statement here by the disciples who they, they look at this beautiful temple adorned with beautiful stones and all these things dedicated to God. And Jesus says, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another, but it'll all be thrown down. Now, I got, a, got some slides up on the screen if you want to show this here, um, the, of the Temple Mount back in Jesus' day. Herod was the one that commissioned the rebuilding of the temple. And this was the, the whole area called the Temple Mount. And you've got Solomon's porch over here. You've got the Temple Mount. You've got the Court of the Gentiles. A ton of things that I wish I had time to explain, but I can't. Um, but if you want to look at some of this stuff online, you can. But then obviously back there at the top is the temple. And you guys can go to the next slide if you want. Uh, we'll zoom in a little bit here. Um, but the temple was recommissioned to be built, and it took about 46 years to rebuild it. And it was incredible. It was intricate. It was incredibly costly. And as you can begin to see, the temple was completely covered in gold and in jewels. And if you guys will go to that last slide of the temple, you'll see when you zoom into the very front steps, you've got this little guy right here, which is, gives you a size of how big the temple was in comparison to a person. And even these sculptures of grapes and vines and everything were just massive, bigger than these buildings. And so you look at a thing like this temple, completely covered in gold. It was so shiny. It was so beautiful and so bright. When the sun would come out and shine against it, it would just be a ginormous beacon of light. You couldn't even look at it. And so you would imagine as Jesus looks at this ginormous, beautiful, intricate, incredible, it was literally one of the most wondrous things of the common ancient world. Some have even written that it was more amazing than the seven wonders of the world at that time. It was that magnificent. To give you some scale for some of these stones, one massive stone that they would put to build this temple, stone by stone, one stone, 67 feet long, seven feet high, and nine feet wide. That's one brick of that building. You imagine how incredible that would have cost, how incredible it would have been to look at, and obviously it was a wonder. And so for Jesus to say, there's going to be a day when this whole thing's going to be falling down, That would have been a very provocative, very shocking statement for them in that day. They would have probably looked at him like, I think he's he's off his rocker a little bit. But it happened, did it not? Do we know history? Do I remember what happened in AD 70? Rome came to Jerusalem, surrounded it just like Jesus said, occupied it, destroyed it, burned it to the ground, destroyed the temple. And to this day, you can fly to Jerusalem, you can go to the Western Wall, the Dome of the Rock, and you can stand and see one tiny wall section of the back of the temple, and all the giant stones are completely thrown down, broken into pieces to this very day. Everything Jesus said literally came true word for word. If that doesn't give you confidence in Jesus, I don't know what else will. He doesn't just speak things to speak things. His words are truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus speaks, and it happens. And so this would have been an incredible, incredible prophecy that came true. And ironically, the temple was finished in AD 63, and then seven years later, completely destroyed. So all those years to get it back to its glory, and seven years later, it's toast. 
So if that wasn't shocking enough then, the disciples are kind of like, whoa, this guy's talking about the temple being thrown down? He takes that to a whole other level and basically predicts and prophesies for them what's the coming persecution, the coming of the, the persecution of the church and the church age, which we read about in Acts. And then obviously he's prophesying too about the, the end of the world and when he's going to come again. And so there's a lot going on here. Again, I wish there was more time, but there's just not. But there's three primary sections for all of Jesus' warning signs. Some are more for the disciples, some were for Jerusalem, and some are for all of us today. So they kind of break down like this, personal, local, and cosmic. So let's jump into the first one, personal signs. These would have been the signs that he was speaking to his disciples and warning them about in their day. This is primarily verses 5 through 19. He warns them that false teachers are going to come in verse 8. He warns them of wars and nations rising against nations in verses 9 and 10. He warns them of massive cosmic catastrophes in a verse 11. In verse 12, he warns them about persecution. Now notice this. He says, you'll be imprisoned. You'll be betrayed by family and friends. Some of you will be killed. You'll be hated by everyone for my name's sake. Wow. Can you just put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a second? Would you be overwhelmed at this point? <laughs> I would be. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus being Jesus, then in verse 13, takes it to a whole other level. Look in your Bible at verse 13. Jesus says, after all that, he says, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Wow. Some of you are going to die. Some of you, your own family will hate you, persecute you, and throw you in jail. But don't worry. This will be an opportunity for you to bear witness about me about my name, Jesus says. That is a profound statement, and it gives us an indication of what Jesus' primary heart is for his disciples. And I'll give you a clue. It's not comfort. It's not complacency. It's not ease of life. It is a commitment to a kingdom in a king that is not of this world, and the world will not understand, and the world will hate. But it is our opportunity to bear witness to his name. Why? because he is the king of all kings, and he is the Lord of all lords. He deserves our allegiance. He deserves our own life. Him laying down his life is, is definitely worthy of me laying down mine. He was perfect. I am far from it. And so I don't know how that hits you today. I don't know what's going on in your life today. But I want to encourage you that as you see things in your own life, Whatever those things might be, whatever that persecution might be, we, we live in a very different world than most Christians around anywhere else in the world. You probably know that. There are people today who do die for their faith. They are imprisoned for their faith. They can't read the Bible without fear of death or persecution. There are families that, there's kids in the room, I won't say that. There are things that happen that we will probably not have to face, but we will face something because Jesus says, and I'm going to read in John 15, that the world hated him, therefore the world is going to hate us. But are you willing to embrace that opportunity to bear witness to Jesus and his goodness upon your life, even if you lose your life? So the call to follow Jesus, church, it does not exclude us from suffering. It does not exclude us from trials. It does not exclude us from persecution. And Jesus says that very, very, very explicitly in John 15, I forgot to put the slide in there, so just follow along uh, and listen, if you will. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. 
Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you kept my word, they will also keep yours. But, if, but they do all of these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. And the one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. And Jesus also says in Matthew 24, 14, he says, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The church, it's not an easy word to bring to you today, but expect persecution. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but expect it. And as you do, remember to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Keep your eyes on Him and be prepared to share your hope and your faith in Him and bear witness to Him. And so those were some of the personal warning signs for the disciples then, but we know that some of that's going to translate to our day as well. The second is the local warning signs, which had to do with the very near future of the disciples in Jerusalem and all of the temple. And that's verses 20 through 24. Jesus talks about how Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, people fleeing for their lives in verses 20 through 22. In verses 23 and 24, he talks about great distress, death, and Jerusalem will fall into the hands of the Gentiles. That was Rome. That happened. It was brutal, it was gruesome, and it devastated the Israelite people. And as I've already mentioned, it took place just like Jesus said that it would. And it makes me think, too, I was just in Salt Lake City a couple weeks ago on a mission trip, and Salt Lake City is the home of the Mormon church. They have a really big, beautiful temple, and people go from all over the world to go, ooh, and awe at how beautiful and how amazing it is. And the irony is, there's going to be a day when that thing doesn't exist anymore. And a sadder irony is that, that that temple represents a false gospel. And in the very same way, the temple back then was often looked at by people as a thing that they put their hope in. They put their trust in buildings and beautiful things, and I think it's an, also a reminder for us today not to put our hope in things that we can see, right? Everything in this world is temporary and it will pass away, but only one thing remains, Jesus' words and our faith and our hope in Him. Amen. Lastly, the third warning sign is cosmic warning signs, verses 25 through 28. This is still to come. And Jesus foretells not only the coming of the Son of Man, but some of the things that are going to happen when He begins to come. Signs in the sun, moon, and stars, anguish and confusion on the earth. People will be overtaken by fear. These are all things we've been seeing since Jesus ascended. It's easy to look right now and say, man, the last couple of years we've really seen this, haven't we? And we can all shake our heads. But they've been seeing that for decades too. So this, we don't know when the end is coming, but we kind of know that there's a trend, there's a pattern, anguish and fear, signs in the heavens and earth and natural calamities, disasters, earthquakes, floods, all these types of things are all a part of it leading up to him coming again. But then Jesus says that then they will see the Son of Man descending in a cloud. And remember, if you remember back to the first part of this passage, the false teachers 
They were saying, I am the prophet. I am the Messiah. I am the one that is to come. And he says, don't listen to them. And so it's interesting as we get to the end times, if you're hearing people saying, I am here, I'm this, or I'm that, it's probably not true. Jesus says, you'll see me. You'll see me. And that's going to be unmistakable for the entire world. So we are kind of in this phase right now called the, in the, the already but the not yet. We're in the in-between phases of waiting for the Lord to come again. We don't know if that could be tomorrow. It could be another 2,000 years. Who knows? But we want to be aware, and I think this is why Jesus is, is telling his disciples all this stuff. He's not telling them to scare them. He's not telling them to make them worry. But then we see in verses 29 through 20, 36, three final instructions. And I think these are really helpful and very applicable to us as well. In 29 through 33, he tells a parable. Now, some people are really confused by this, and they, they take it allegorically, which means they make it like a story that represents something bigger than it actually is. But ironically, if you just read your Bible, at verse 29, it says, then he told them a parable. It's a parable because the Bible says it's a parable. <laughs> and so don't take it as an allegory. Some people think this fig tree thing actually represents Israel, and there's a whole lot of weird stuff out there about it. But the very simple reading of the text is a parable. And we all know that a parable is not a realistic thing necessarily. It's a story that illuminates a truth, right? Jesus tells a truth about a fig tree, and when you see the leaves... You're going to know it's summer, and you're going to know that what season it is. And so the lesson of that parable is quite simple. It will be obvious when the end is near, when the end is coming, based on what you see, right? When we see the wars, when we see false teachers arising up, when we see all of these things happen, we are just going to be knowing, okay, this is happening. It's, it, we don't know when, but we kind of know what kind of time period that we're in. And I want to encourage you with this as well. I was in a coffee shop two days ago, um, having a meeting with another guy, and there's a lady at the next table next to me, and she kept interrupting our conversation, which was okay, slightly obnoxious, but okay, because um, I never know what God's doing, so I, I try to be open to that, and there's sometimes my flesh is too fleshly, uh, if I'm being honest, and the first time she interrupted, it was slightly irritating, because uh, we're having a meeting, and she's like, hey, I want to tell you about the book I'm reading. It's like, uh, okay, sure. Um, but interestingly, she had heard us talking about Jesus and about the church and about different things, and she felt compelled to interrupt us. And she said, I'm, doing a, I'm writing a Bible study right now to do this next week. And I said, oh, that's, that's cool. And I looked over at her table, and there wasn't a Bible to be found. She didn't have a phone out, didn't have a tablet open, didn't have anything that she could be reading a Bible on. She was reading some other book and had a notebook. And I thought, that's interesting. A Bible study with no Bible. How does that work? It's different. I would say it's dangerous. How could you teach the Bible without the Bible? Now, some would say, oh, I'm sure the book had some scripture references in it, Brett. Come on, give the lady the benefit of the doubt, and maybe I will. However, I looked at the name of the book, and it's, it's a little bit out there. And so my fear and my encouragement for you today in that is there's a lot of good books out there, but there's only one really, really good book. And I know that sounds cliche. You're probably like, dude, pastors say that all the time. I get it. But it's true. It's true. There is only one book that has everything you need. The Bible says everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you through the person of Jesus Christ. How do you know who Jesus is? How do you know what Jesus wants for your life? How do you know what his plans are for you and how he wants you to live? How do you know what the church is? How do you know what a good church looks like? How do you know what a good pastor is? How do you know how to be a good parent, how to have a good marriage, how to, how to raise your kids? It's all in here. Now, it's not all easy. 
But this is the one book. And so I just want to encourage you, in the end times that we live in, are you biblically observant? What I mean by that is when you look at what's happening in our world today, don't just go, oh, wow, that's so terrible. These people are so terrible. Yeah, everyone's so lost. This is terrible. It's the end times. Can you look at what's happening in the world through the lens of Scripture? Do you know your Bible well enough to, when you see what's happening in the world, you know why? You know why it's happening because you know what this book says about the world. And you're not scared about what's happening in the world because Jesus has already told you what's going to happen. The book of Revelation, for example, an incredible book to study. But are you biblically observant? Could you read the Bible and have a biblical worldview when you see the things happening in the world? Because, it, because everything that we need, Jesus says, has been given to us. If you are a Christian this morning, then you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He lives inside of you. That's an incredible gift, is it not? You've been given the Spirit of God. You've been given the Word of God. And you've been placed inside of a healthy community called the people of God, the church. Those are all three gifts that God has given you. Are you leveraging those in your life to be a firm, stable, founded on God's Word type of person? Be biblically observant. And remember, many things are temporary, and there's many good books out there, but Jesus' words are the only words that will never pass away. And so devote your life to knowing those words more than you know the words of other people and other authors and other books. Know His words above all else. So that's the first instruction from Jesus, be observant. The second one is be on guard. That's verse 34. It says, be on guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing drunkenness and the worries of life. Uh, I don't have time for a whole other sermon on this one, but the way that we treat what we put in our mind is so important for how we live our life down here. If you spend 20 hours a week watching any news media outlet, which I'm not going to name one, but you pick the one that you like, if you spend more time watching that than you do reading this, your life will be a little jacked up. You'll be nervous. You'll be worried. You'll be fearful. You'll be anxious. You'll be angry. Because that stuff does not promote the things of God. Those are non-Christian sources telling you all sorts of things to make you worried about the other party. But this thing will purify your mind. It will give you the heart of God. It will give you the heart of Jesus. It will inform how you ought to live. So my encouragement is mentally, what are you consuming? You and I both know that how we treat our bodies is really important, and what we consume dictates what we end up looking like and how our health is. It's not different with our minds and our spiritual soul. What are you feeding your soul? Are you on guard? Are you guarding and putting boundaries around what you consume, what you watch, what you read, what you listen to, who you let influence your life? And again, how much of it is influenced by the, the Word of God? So carousing is just indulgence. Drunkenness, that's really, that could be literal, or that could be just literally a lack of sober-mindedness. Do you have a sober mind, meaning are you a stable person mentally because your, your mind is fixed on Him? And the worries of life. We all have worries of life. There's all things, all sorts of things every week that we face as well as a family. We get it. But what do you do with those worries? Who do you take them to? One encouragement, real practically, turn your problems into prayers. Take those to the Lord. And lastly, don't be so consumed building a comfortable life here that you forget to be consumed by the real kingdom and the real king. Because there will become a day where this world ends and you take nothing with you, but you will face God. You'll look at him face to face and you'll have given account for your life just like I will. 
And there's many mistakes that I've made that I will face for and I'll hold be held accountable for. But are you building your kingdom or are you building his? It starts with what you think about, what you consume in your mind. Third instruction from Jesus is to be alert. That is in verse 36. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place so you can stand before the Son of Man. Be alert. Be alert. Be prayerful. Again, be praying more than you're worrying. Being reading and praying more than you're watching news and getting worked up into a frenzy. Pray for strength to endure. Dig in here at this church. Dig in with the people of God. Get in the Word. Get in Bible studies. Get in community. Serve the community. Things you guys are doing, it sounds like a great thing. Keep going. Keep digging into God, into His Word, into the church, building a foundation that will weather the storms of this life. Don't be complacent, and don't let yourself be consumed by the things of the world. So lastly, as we begin to wrap all this up, I want to give you a few additional application suggestions. I firmly believe that if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I firmly believe that every Christian in this room is hearing from the Lord today in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what it is, but I want you to prayerfully right now, just say in your mind to yourself, to the Lord, Lord, show me today what you want to teach me. And as we leave here today, may we be faithful and courageous to walk in that even if it's uncomfortable or new or scary. Here's a few more encouragements in terms of application I think that we see as we look at this passage. Number one, don't be fooled or afraid. Again, false teachers abound today. If you want to talk to me about that after the service, that's one of my hobby projects is researching and keeping track of false teachers, and it's a mess. And I could give you a 1,000 today, and it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. There are so many people teaching so many things that are not true. All look very good, looks very flashy, looks very pretty. Some doesn't. But the goal is, at the end of the day, do we know God's Word? Are you devoting your life to be a student of God's Word? You don't have to have, to have a seminary degree to know God's Word. You can be equipped to know, to defend the faith. But false teachers abound, so don't be fooled. And the only way you can not be fooled is if you actually know the real thing. You know when they train people to discover uh, counterfeit money? They don't train them to look at false counterfeit money, do they? They train them to look and study what? The real thing. Because the better you know the real thing, you will instantly recognize a fake. And that is the same with our spiritual life. The more that you know God's word, you know the truth, you know your doctrine, you know why you believe what you believe, immediately you can say, oh, that sermon did not sound accurate. That author did not have it right. And you can also work on that together in community. So don't be fooled. Um, and don't be afraid either. Um, the Bible is very clear that he's not given us a spirit of fear. We're going to be given to that. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. So many passages, I think it's 365 times, the Bible says the phrase, do not be afraid. We have nothing to fear. Now, that's easy to say in this room, in this context. I get it. It is. The Apostle Paul in Philippians says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In all seriousness, church, and I don't want this reality, but in all seriousness, the worst that could possibly come to you and to me would be persecution and then death. But if you are a believer, then that means you get promoted to an eternity with Jesus. So I don't wish that on anybody right now, and I don't wish any of that persecution on anybody. But even if it does, even if everything gets taken away and everything becomes incredibly difficult, the worst that could happen is you die and you get promoted to heaven. There's hope in that, but that also should give us a fearlessness about what we face down here. 
What really do I have to fear for preaching the good news and telling people about Jesus? What is the absolute worst they could do? Send me to heaven. <laughs> let's be bold. Let's be, let's be fearless, church. There's nothing to be afraid. And that leads to my second encouragement to you. Keep witnessing. There are statistics out there that will just blow your mind that most people raised in the church, born in the church, married in the church, buried in the church, will never share the gospel with anybody their entire life. That is a tragedy. And bigger than that, it's completely disobedient to King Jesus' command in the Great Commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to make disciples. Church, we have to. Not because Brett says, but because King Jesus has commanded it. We must keep witnessing. We must keep reaching your community. Way to go. Do the thing that you're talking about with Loving Boone and whatever those initiatives are that you are doing in your church. Keep engaging in that. Participate in that. More than that, the greatest need that people in Boone have is a spiritual need for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, I pray that those physical needs will be a bridge to spiritual conversations, and I believe they can and they will be. Engage. Participate in what your church is doing to lead you on mission to keep witnessing. And remember that you will probably face some kind of persecution, but remember, King Jesus died for what he believed to make you right with God again so that you could proclaim him until you could be with him again. So get equipped to share the gospel. Uh, Third encouragement, stake your life on God's word. I've already said quite a bit about that, so I'm not going to say any more about that, but stake your life on God's word. Make everything about your life founded on the truth of this book. Devote your life to it. And lastly, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. There's so many things that are prone to distract us, detour us, or sway us away. But church, please, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life building little kingdoms down here with little toys and little things. It's all going to burn. You're not going to take it with you. You can enjoy it for, what, a few years? Build and invest in eternity. Eternity is forever. What you do in your home with your spouse, with your kids, with your neighbors, that has eternal consequences. You can disciple your kids to know Jesus more and greater, and their affections can be more and greater. Or you can neglect them and let the world disciple them and all that other stuff. Your marriage could be great, and you could be pouring into your spouse. Your community could hear the gospel from your lips and from your life, or you could just be the one Christian that never says anything and just has a nice house. Invest in eternity, church. I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you. For all we know, eternity happens tomorrow. For all we know, we breathe our last tomorrow. For all we know, Jesus comes back tomorrow. Don't waste your life. Because everything that you pour into an eternal bucket The Bible tells you that you are storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. Jesus says it in the great great sermon of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You guys have probably already heard this illustration, so if you have, forgive me, but John Piper had a sermon called Don't Waste Your Life. Anybody ever heard that sermon? Fantastic. One person, two people. Google that today. Go on YouTube and watch just John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. Listen to that sermon. In that sermon, he gives an illustration about seashells, about these people who spend their whole life saving up for retirement, they buy this big boat, they move to Florida, and they spend all of their time collecting shells on their big boat. And they're excited about that. And then there's other people in the world who are spending their lives for the gospel, and they're dying on the mission field, or they're being persecuted for their faith. And some would say, wow, they died overseas in this mission field. Nobody even knew who they were. They never had any money. What a tragedy. 
And Piper makes the point, is it? Is it really a tragedy to die in service for the Lord? He basically says the greater tragedy is those who never live for the Lord. In fact, they live for themselves and they collect shells. And you come to the end of your life and you say, look, God, look at my shells. God's not looking for shells. He's looking for obedience and faithfulness to the things he's already told us to do that we just are often slow to do, including myself. So let's invest in eternity. Let's not waste our lives. And as we don't waste our lives, we are not only joining him in his mission, but we keep our eyes fixed and waiting for him to come again. Verses 27 and 28 says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. And so church, if you are a Christian today, remember that life will be hard. But remember that your Savior and your King is coming again. And there will be a day, praise God, where there will be no sickness, there will be no death, there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, there will be no evil. We can't even fathom that, can we? But there will be a day where that will be our eternal reality. Praise God. Praise God for that reality. Amen? That is the hope that we look forward to, but we don't get stuck in just looking and going, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. We invest and live our life for eternity, but we also, it's like bifocals, right? You have one vision and you're keeping your eyes up here, but you're also down here. You're back and forth. Jesus, I'm waiting for you. Please come again. How can I love my neighbor and share the gospel? Jesus, please come. The world is so broken. I want you to come. How can I disciple my kids to know Jesus? Jesus, please come. The world is so broken and painful. I don't want to be here anymore. Okay, but how can I be faithful in my community today? Have a bifocal vision for your life. Focus on Jesus, but also be investing in eternity. And I don't know where any of you are today because I don't know you. And so I have to say that if you don't know Jesus That is the most important thing in this world that you have to deal with today. The Bible is very clear that if you come by repentance and faith and believing in the perfect and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, meaning he died in your place for your sins, the Bible says you can be forgiven of all those sins, you can be adopted into God's family, you can be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and you will be eternally secure. But all of that is only possible if you acknowledge that you are a sinner that has rebelled against a perfect and a holy God. Believe that only Jesus' life and death on the cross and his resurrection are the only things that can make you right with God again. And then confess to follow him all the days of your life. And if you can say that and you really believe that, the Bible says you can become a Christian today. And if that is not, if that's where you're at today or if you have questions about that, please don't leave here without talking to me, Josh, Another person here uh, that's on staff or a person that you know is here that knows how to explain the gospel to you, come to Jesus and be forgiven of your sin. Submit to the king. And I'll read this verse and then we'll begin to wrap up. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, that so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Not everyone is saved, but everyone who believes right? So if you believe, then that's you. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So for you listening online, are you here today? 
If you are not following Jesus, if you don't believe in Jesus, here is an opportunity to learn and to follow him. God has sovereignly placed me in your life today, if that's you, to say repent and believe and turn to Jesus today. Church, our hope is secure. Our hope is secure and our eternal destiny is secure because Jesus Christ has done it all. There's nothing that you could do to make God love you any more or any less. He is coming again. He's already accomplished your salvation. He's accomplished your redemption. He is with you and indwelling you as you work out your sanctification. And he is coming again to gather the church to himself and to glorify his people and to make everything new and everything right. So church, um, let's be faithful until he comes. Let's practice our life with great faith. Let's have evangelistic zeal. Let's be prayerful. Let's be watchful. Let's invest in eternity. Let's be that type of church. Would you stand with me as I read this final scripture that I think brings glory to Jesus and his name? It's in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. It'll be up on the screen. I think this is a fitting way to end the sermon today. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and a godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us For himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that these words would impact us in a meaningful way. I pray that your truth, your words, your scripture would be the thing that we walk out of here thinking about, grateful that you have accomplished redemption. Thank you, God, that we have a living hope because of your son, Jesus Christ, because of his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. Father, I pray that this church would be a beacon of hope, a beacon of light here in Boone and beyond and to the ends of the earth. God, that you would empower them to live with great faith, with great zeal, with great evangelistic fervor, with prayerfulness and watchfulness until you come again. Thank you, God, for the hope that we have only through your son. May we live in light of eternity to please him until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.